Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Artificial intelligence is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Olivia Shen, Director at the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. On this episode, we're diving into what is a really hot topic at the moment, artificial intelligence, and more specifically, the potential uses of AI and autonomy in warfighting. It's a topic that has attracted a lot of military strategizing and R&D funding, not to mention controversy and concern about the prospect of killer robots taking to the battlefield. We're delighted today to be speaking to someone who's very qualified to explain how AI is likely to transform the future of Australia's defence. Colonel Robin Smith is the inaugural director of the Australian Army's Robotic and Autonomous Systems Implementation and Coordination Office, or RICO for short. In that role, Robin oversees Army's investigation of emerging and disruptive technologies, including autonomy and AI. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks for having me. Robin, you've been in your role since 2017. Can you please tell us about your background in the armed forces and how you came into what is really quite a unique role inside Army? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'm a a relative newcomer to the Australian Army, uh, having joined uh, in 2017, as you identified. Uh, Prior to that, I conducted around 30 years of service with the British military. Uh, So I joined the Army as a young 18-year-old as an electronics technician uh, in the late 80s, let's say, because that's a very long time ago. Uh, My first unit was a a tank unit, and I was uh, responsible for maintaining the electronic systems on a tank. Uh, After a few years, I went to uh, officer training, uh, the Royal Military um, Academy Sandhurst, and then fulfilled sort of usual junior officer um, portfolio of uh, junior commands and so on as a logistics officer predominantly. Um, in the early 2000s, I attended the UK uh, Command and Staff College, um, of which was a two-year program at the time. And the first year was a master's degree in defense technology, which sort of built on the background of, uh, I guess, that electronics technician um, uh, work. Again, uh, middle-ranking uh, sort of positions and then sort of culminated my British military career um, as a commanding officer of a, a logistics regiment in Germany. At the end of that, uh, my wife suggested that we should do an overseas posting. 
uh, and the opportunity to come to Australia uh, to teach at the Australian Command and Staff College um, popped up. So we took the opportunity and came across in 2014. And whilst we were here, we were made aware of a scheme where you can laterally move from the British military into the Australian Army. Uh, and so we both applied and were accepted. And uh, in late 2017 uh, was my first posting in the Australian Army into the Future Land Warfare branch. And at the time, uh, there were a number of areas of modernization that Army was particularly interested in, uh, and I picked up the portfolio for robotic and autonomous systems. Um, my first task was to write the robotics and autonomous systems strategy for Army, uh, which I wrote um, in 2018, and that was released in uh, early in 2019. And then, of course, having written the strategy, I was then asked to start to implement the strategy. <laughs> um, and so um, so began a process of uh, gradual increase in a number of projects, uh, which we may discuss later, um, around how Army might use um, autonomy uh, and robotic systems uh, for a future land warfare conflict. So that's a fantastic wealth of experience that has led you to this role. Um, I'm very glad that we were able to poach you, yourself, and your wife uh, from the British. So thank you, Poms. Thanks for the talent. Um, we're all about caring and sharing, particularly now in the context of AUKUS. So you are a, you are a precursor to that kind of collaboration. Now, um, so before we sort of get into some of the more specific projects that RICO has embarked on, can you give us a bit of that context about how AI, in your view, can support Army's mission and in terms of delivering a strategic advantage? And what does AI actually look like in the context of warfighting? How much are we actually going to automate, for example? Yeah, I think um, from my perspective, I think we have to approach artificial intelligence in a certain way. And the way that we're approaching it in the RICO team is that, that artificial intelligence is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Um, and the uh, RAS strategy uh, highlights a number of offsets that Army could benefit from robotics and autonomy autonomy underpinned by artificial intelligence. And there are kind of five offsets uh, that the strategy highlights. Uh, the first one is about lightening the individual soldier loads. So from a cognitive and a physical perspective. So here you could be thinking of greater situational awareness in that very tactical space that the soldier operates in, or indeed, and you may have seen on social media, sort of load carriage uh, robots. So the soldier's physical load is lightened. We're also looking at artificial intelligence to improve our decision making and our speed of decision making. So how can we process uh, vast quantities of data as we proliferate a number of systems in our uh, operating environment? How can we fuse that data together, make sense of what's what's in front of us and use artificial intelligence techniques to um, accelerate the speed of decision. Uh, we often talk about getting around the OODA loop um, and, you know, uh, generating tempo is a maneuverist approach to warfare. So if you can move faster or react more quickly than the enemy, you're generating tempo and therefore that can give you a positional advantage. AI might allow us to fuse that data together and make either faster or more informed decisions. Um, we're also looking at the systems to provide us with um, force protection. So that's the traditional dull, dirty, dangerous tasks for robotic systems, which may or may not need high levels um, of artificial intelligence. And of course, we're, we're looking at efficiency in our supply chain, our medical systems and our maintenance. And that could be from, um, you know, robotic delivery, um, the uh, work ongoing uh, in the last mile delivery for logistics. And then finally, I think for a modest size organization that we are, the ability to generate mass 
um, and scalable effects. And here we're talking about human machine teaming in particular, how we operate um, uh, optionally crewed vehicles, for example. So you have the ability to sometimes be in the platform and other times not be in the platform and use it for other roles. Uh, and scalable effects here we're talking about um, you know, not necessarily just swarming, but so, so swarming ideas. How can you, you know, use large numbers or increased numbers of robotic platforms to give you that um, offset or that asymmetric advantage that we often talk about on the battlefield? So all of those sort of scalable effects that we would like to have all require a different level of artificial intelligence. Some of them don't require any. Literally, a remote control platform mm. could give you the force protection that you need yeah, all the way through to, you know, very what people might consider to be very high-end artificial intelligence. So it's really interesting that it sounds like there's a huge amount of opportunity there, um, but it's going to be AI and autonomy is something you dial up or down depending on the context of the requirement. Um, I really like what you've said about uh, the, the dull, dirty, dangerous. I know that's one of those things that a lot of different armies around the world are looking at as an initial starting point for AI and how they build in AI as a capability. But you've sort of gone that next step and explore sort of that, that situational awareness aspect and the higher level and the lower level things that AI could potentially achieve. It does remind me to, um, of one of our previous podcasts where we interviewed um, Stella Solar, who is the director of the National AI Centre at the CSIRO, and she talks a lot about the persistence and the pervasiveness of AI as one of its key advantages, and that's two key advantages that definitely can deliver that asymmetric advantage. Um, but I also really like that you've always, you've contextualised it really clearly in that AI is a tool. It is a means to an end and it's not an end in itself. So if we can start to drill down a bit deeper, can you tell us about a couple of specific projects that Rico is working on at the moment? Yeah, we have a large number of projects across not just robotic and autonomous systems and, and AI, but also quantum technology, electrification, uh, with a lead for innovation for Army as well. So we've got a, a very broad portfolio. I think before I dive down into one of the one or two of those projects, I think it's also just worth making the point that part of the voyage of discovery that, that the RICO is on with Army and for Army is understanding what level of autonomy is suitable for the task. So what do you want to be able to do? That is almost the start point of, therefore, what autonomy might add value mm -hmm. to that undertaking, yeah. as opposed to autonomy for its own sake. So I think that's just, we'll just park that for a second. So I guess one of the more recent, uh, more high profile projects that we've worked on um, is the autonomous leader follower um, vehicle convoy that we created. And here it goes back to that kind of efficiency I was talking about in the supply chain. So what we have done is we've taking, taken uh, a number of um, trucks that the Army currently operates uh, in logistic roles, and we fitted a pretty high level of autonomy to those platforms um, and created a convoy system that allows uh, the follow vehicles, which are fully autonomous, uh, to, to follow <laughs> a lead vehicle or a UAS or a pre-ordained uh, route, and then they will navigate that route independently uh, both of each other and of the leader. Um, and the onboard AI is the decision-making engine for whether they avoid an obstacle, steer around an obstacle. If a vehicle in front breaks down, they'll go around. They identify classifying other road users and adapting their behavior in accordance with uh, the scene that's presented independently in front of them. Uh, it's independent of a network, which of course for, for army in the deployed space, we can't necessarily assume there'll be a, a huge 5G network surrounding all of the platforms. So 
you know, we've tried to build, uh, we've tried to build this from a kind of a conceptual perspective saying, Hey, this is how we want to operate mm. our logistic platforms. Can autonomy help? So what's the point of autonomy and what I've described? Well, if you think that, uh, the operators of these trucks are probably the rate limiting factor. So, a two-person crew can probably operate that platform for nine hours a day each mm. unless they get pretty tired. And yes, of course, they could go beyond that, but not day after day after day. Mm. And so that gives you about 18 hours of operation for that platform. Well, there are 24 hours in a day. So are we wasting 25% of the day? Can we buy back that 25% of the day using autonomy? And I realize that's a very time-based um, approach. Or... Uh, are there occasions where we want to uh, take a convoy somewhere which is particularly high risk and therefore could we then opt to not have soldiers in the cab mm. and still have the delivery mechanism? Um, and that will, of course, be tactically um, dependent on the tactical situation that they find themselves. So the two elements there, I guess, are you know, the efficiency aspect, um, which allows us to move more and more of the time, and then the force protection aspect, which allows us to potentially opt not to have soldiers in. So the leader follower, we took that on the road um, in Victoria. Uh, we ran a, uh, a vehicle convoy of uh, five vehicles, one lead and four follow, uh, on the Hume Highway um, as part of a simulated mission from Mangalore Airfield to Pukapanyal. Um And thanks to um, you know Roads Victoria, uh, the um, National Transport Research Organization and Deakin University who've supported us through that sort of exploration of that technology. I think that's fantastic that you've talked about how you've collaborated um, with a couple of different partners, including Rhodes Victoria and Deakin, to realize this, to actually bring it from just the conceptual level to sort of live deployment on an actual road in Australia. What was that process like? Was it really difficult to kind of bring people on board or was it really kind of, is that, are we pushing on an open door in some of these AI collaborations? So firstly, um, working with Deakin was a, was an absolute pleasure. We sort of set the, this is what we would like to do. And they helped us to figure out the technology solution, which I think is appropriate. Um, you know, we can have as many good ideas as we want, but if they're not technically feasible, then, <laughs> then they go nowhere. So, um, that, that was a very, very healthy, uh, you know, working relationship with them. We had regular meetings around what they were thinking about how it might work, what we had a view of how the system might work. Um, and then when it came to the, uh, the sort of roads element, the National Transport Research Organization, um, really helped us to navigate the kind of performance characteristics. Everyone is interested in autonomy. Mm. Everyone is interested in seeing that it might add value for us, particularly in a continent sized nation that we have. You know, um, there are a lot of, um, open spaces where this type of technology could be really useful. So there's interest in the sense of, the technology is interesting, mm. but there is also application both in a military and a civilian sense. But understanding, you know, what are the performance criteria? How do you know this thing is suitable to go on the road? How do you know uh, what, you know, graceful degradation looks like for these type of systems? How have they learned? Have they learned the right thing? How do we process the data? It's all part of the journey. What does the safety case look like? Mm. How do we build a safety case for a platform such as this? And so everyone has been learning along the whole process. And, and not only is it informing armies kind of concepts of how we might operate, but it's also been instructive, I think, for you know the regulatory aspects. So unlike the air and the maritime domain where they have international regulations, for Australia in particular, rivers and roads are state and territory regulated. And so it's not one size fits all. We have to navigate multiple uh, different regulatory bodies. And so it was, it was hard, but the purpose of doing things is not because they're easy, right? So, mm. you know, we, we, um, were able to, 
demonstrate the safety. Of course, we had fallbacks. The system is designed to fail safe, which in a military context is not ideal. But if we want to test the boundaries and the parameters and the concept of what we'd like to achieve, then we have to live within those safety criteria. And yeah, then we absolutely. can work out how we, how we either apply or don't apply those safety criteria in a military domain. And I think that's a beautiful model for bringing in a whole lot of different perspectives and interdisciplinary expertise. So as part of that learning journey, having people from diverse backgrounds and areas of either, you know, infrastructure, policymaking, military, academia, technological solutions, I think we sometimes in the hype of AI lose sight of the fact that these systems exist inside of a system. This is not a technology that is bespoke in a laboratory. It has an impact on the broader environment that it sits within and it operates in. So bringing in all those perspectives and learning together through that collaborative process is something really important for designing solutions that are fit for purpose and that are less prone to failure. And of course, anything short of that, we probably wouldn't deploy in battlefield settings or military applications. So you mentioned before that you had worked on Leader Follower with Deakin University and it was fantastic to work with them. Um, you mentioned the importance of having the right technical solution for what you want to achieve. Have you worked with industry more broadly on some of Rico's projects and what has that dynamic been like? Because I understand that with a lot of different militaries around the world now looking at AI, they're very cognizant and sensitive to that risk of vendor lock. They want to have sovereign systems or sovereign capability and they don't necessarily want to be beholden to an industry player or a private firm to deliver some of these solutions for them. So how do you navigate some of those tensions? Um, that is a great question. Um, of course, the RICO role is not to procure and bring into service capability. Our role is to kind of conceptualize and learn through doing um, how we might apply this technology, which gives us a degree of freedom. Um, and of course, defense industry and Actually, in this context, industry more widely, because much of this technology is not unique to um, defense, traditional defense industry, um, also want to know what, what Army wants, because, of course, industry will make us whatever we want. And so um, part of our journey is to understand what is most impactful for us, and therefore we can make decisions on how we want to um, develop the the application of the technology in a capability outcome sense. So industry has been very keen to work with us and we've been very keen to work with industry too. And indeed we run a annual robotics exposition where we have 60 or so um, varying size companies come and show us some of the um, autonomous uh, type technology and it's not whole systems necessarily it could be sensors and uh, and so on uh, and that allows us to have that sort of very free and open conversation around well what can you do what do we want what do we want based on what you can do and so we we tend to go um in this sort of uh, i think quite healthy cycle of of sharing data and kind of ideas and, and understanding and of course we engage at various industry events and so on i think um 
we use a kind of uh, challenge statement type approach. So, you know, we have a hypothesis of what we're trying to achieve. We try and identify a suitable um, industry partner uh, that will help us either test that hypothesis or disprove it because um, it's not always successful. Um, and then then we contract them and go about the uh, the trial. And I guess uh, an example might be uh, we wanted to see how we could do air ground teaming. So how can we team autonomous systems in the air with platforms on the ground? Uh, and we undertook that. Uh, with Boeing um, and uh, it was the Phantom Works team up in Brisbane and so uh, we developed uh, they developed for us with us um, some artificial intelligence to help us identify and classify ob uh, objects on the ground and to provide a clear path for a route for a vehicle on the ground an autonomous vehicle on the ground and so we went from idea of hey we think we want to do this but we're not quite sure how with Phantom Works assistant saying hey you know, we we have some tech, but we can do some development here with you. And we went on the journey together, a bit like Deacon, you know, of we think we want this, but in our context, it would work more like that. And that culminated really in the AUKUS demonstration that we ran in the UK uh, about six or eight weeks ago, um, where that technology made in Australia was taken and put into the sort of AUKUS um, uh, responsible sort of AI area, the demonstration that we ran uh, just on the edge of Salisbury Plain. And so, you know, I was incredibly proud, but something that we were already working on was able to be leveraged in that way. And so um, industry are are very keen and not in that uh, sort of perhaps slightly narrow view in terms of this is about solely about business development. They want to help us uh, understand what it is that we want. Mm. And we want to understand what it is that we want too, because this technology is still emerging. Mm. This is not a new you know, armored vehicle with this level of protection, or uh, you know, new uh, aircraft with this level of performance. This mm. is this is a scalable set of technologies that will allow us to potentially do things in a fundamentally different way. This could be transformational in the way that we organize ourselves in the future, where we can replace some current human-based systems with robotic systems. Um, we can underpin some of the decision-making with, you know, AI-enabled type systems, which means we might not need to configure in the way that we do right now. And that is a piece of work that's going on in the background about how Army conceptualizes itself in in the future. Mm. Um, you mentioned vendor lock, and I think that's a, that's a really important um, risk and fear that that we have, not, not we army, but we sort of more generally, um, at this stage, it would not be appropriate to be locked into a particular vendor. Uh, and so we're doing a, some work on a generic RAS architecture in the way that army has a generic vehicle architecture, for example, that helps industry build systems that are compliant uh, with what it is that we want to be able to do. And the generic RAS architecture seeks to enable defense to own the ability for robotic systems to communicate together. So we own the gateway, which means we we don't have to necessarily specify um, a certain standard. Defense industry can build whatever they want, but we can also link our network and their system. Yeah. Now we're going down that line at the moment and it's still a work in progress, so it's not solved, um, but that will involve collaboration with industry again more widely to say, hey, here's what we want to achieve. Here is where we think we're going from a technical perspective we probably want to own the IP, um, but we want your expertise in terms of making this thing as usable as possible. Mm -hmm. And that prevents that kind of vendor lock. You're not having, you know, one size networking tool. You must comply with insert company's name. So we're conscious of that. And having that gateway just sounds so powerful. And it's quite a different model to sort of the standard old fashioned procurement of a widget off the shelf. Um, I suppose that 
kind of procurement model is just never going to work for AI or other adaptive emerging technologies. So I guess what we're trying to do is ensure that we can network seamlessly. So passing of data, whether that's, you know, um, ISR, EW or surveillance or, you know, um, electronic warfare type data or whether it's, you know, photographs of targets or whether it's positional data, you know, we, we want to be able to pass data. I think we have a view of the world at the moment where uh, potentially, you know, everything is full motion video streaming down to some sort of central node. I just I just don't see it like that. I don't mm. think we have the bandwidth. I don't yep. think we have the, the requirement, quite frankly. But the more that we can push autonomy and AI to the edge, the more we can start to uh, reduce the amount of data that we do pass, but only pass what's important. Yep. But part of the GRASA journey is understanding, knowing that there are sensors out there that you could draw on if you want to. So it would, it's quite a tough problem. And the, the Land Network Integration Center, which is part of the um, Land Capability Division, are the lead for that particular project. They understand networking. They understand the protocols. They understand the standards and architectures. And so we're very keen to ensure that uh, we well, they are working with us and we are working with them, but also we're taking a view from a integrated force perspective as well. So within the ADF headquarters, we're also looking at how across the services we're able to integrate that data sharing um, as part of um, you know, the ability to ensure that we maximize our effects across the integrated yeah. force. And so there's that interoperability based on the data that we hold exclusively and the IP that we continue to own. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be right back. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So I think part of the question that I was trying to get to on um, vendor lock and the collaboration with industry is some of the very vexed conversations about who has accountability if the AI or the autonomous system goes haywire? And how do we assign the relative weight of risk and culpability if, for example, something goes wrong? And certainly you'd be aware of um, the international uh, non-government organization that has started a campaign to stop killer robots. Uh, it's actually called the campaign to stop killer robots. And they've called for an international ban on fully autonomous weapons. I do want to ask you about how Army is grappling with some of those ethical questions, particularly when we're talking about maybe the more kinetic uses of AI and autonomy. Yeah, well, thanks for the uh, the easy question. Um, 
I think, first of all, um, you know, we're, of course, Army, um, through uh, strategic policy uh, within defense, is fully engaged on, on the conversation around where artificial intelligence and autonomy might go, whether that's with or without a lethal effector. And I think uh, our position is quite clear from a national perspective, and that is that um, you know we understand the requirement to abide by the international humanitarian law norms of war, so distinction, proportionality, and so on. Um, and there is a you know behind the behind the scenes, if you like, of the deployment of all weapon systems is a system of control. And right from the very beginning of the development of those weapons to make sure they comply with international humanitarian law through to the use and employment of those and then finally into the into the deployment, and that's in the sense of rules of engagement and so on, there are checks and balances all the way through. And autonomous systems or systems with autonomous functionality shouldn't be any different. And so the the position that we're taking at the moment is that if a system is not able to um, – enable us to meet the bar of distinction, proportionality, military necessity, and so on, then then we would probably prefer not to use it. Mm. And so it's it's the same sort of standard regardless of the autonomy because, of course, you very quickly dive down into the rabbit hole of which part of the system is autonomous, mm-hmm. um, which part has a human, you know, deciding. Mm. Is, it, is it okay if the human decides to deploy the system? It may have been a number of hours earlier. And the situation has changed, or is it okay, uh, or, or should it be more appropriate? This human is deciding right at the very moment. There's a philosophical debate about whether um, machines or systems should take another human life, mm-hmm. and that's much more of a moral and ethical problem um, versus the legal requirement to meet those humanitarian law norms. And so it's a hugely complex issue, which is why the GGE has been grappling not only with the, what is the definition of a lethal autonomous weapon system, but also also, therefore, what does it mean? And there mm. are narrow interpretations. There are broad interpretations. There's very little agreement on what the actual um, interpretation should be. So, I guess for us, from an army perspective, you know, we want to see where the opportunity uh, comes through autonomy to provide us that asymmetric advantage, but very cognizant of our requirement to abide by international humanitarian law norms. So, would you expect? the collaborators, the the industry partners that you work with to also abide by those international norms? Because one of the the concerns around AI is that idea of black box AI. If you're basing decisions or even targeting on an AI system or or a complex machine learning system where you can't actually necessarily understand every aspect of the system or how it arrived at a recommendation – uh, can you, in good conscience, use that as the basis for a targeting decision or some other form of human-made decision? I guess this fundamentally comes down to how do you test and evaluate non-deterministic mm-hmm. outcomes? Mm-hmm. And the jury's still somewhat out. Um, so do we, the previous way of testing and evaluating or validating such systems is a, a fairly binary when you put in input X, you get output Y, mm-hmm. and it's predictable and it's reliable and it does it the whole time. Where you have non-deterministic outcomes, that's that's more challenging. So, do we have to take a more of a a licensing kind of view? Does it perform within broad parameters, mm. or, or, or you know, within acceptable parameters? What's the threshold? Yes, I mean that becomes really difficult. So, if something works ninety nine point five percent of the time, is that okay? Well. Probably if what you're doing is deciding whether to make an oil change or not, but if the decision is more impactful, then then perhaps 99.5% is not enough. Mm. 
but is but is that even the right way to look at it, look at it as well? Because actually, when you look at um, we hold. Um, I guess machinery and mechanical failure at very very high level. Yes, we expect a hundred percent performance, and and you know, I my smartphone doesn't work a hundred percent of the time. Um, we have IT glitches the whole time, and and it's kind of a standing joke. Humans laugh at technology the whole time, and yet when it comes to the employment of of artificial intelligence, we're expecting zero failure. Mm. So I'm not sure that's even a, an, an aspiration that that is wholly accurate. Secondly, humans are not infallible. Yep. And so we hold humans to this kind of, well, you know, they're kind of human. Um, we all make mistakes and, and, and that's entirely appropriate. And that includes soldiers who, in, you know, engage on the battlefield or pilots, in, uh, you know, choosing a target on the ground. They make the decision in good faith and good consciousness um, at the time, which sometimes with the benefit of hindsight wasn't actually accurate. And there are numbers of different scenarios where that has happened. And yet we're, we don't hold humans and machines to the same standard. Now, machines aren't sentient beings with emotions. And all, I get that. But is it, are we approaching it in the right way, I suppose, is the question that I'm I'm asking. Is, is more of a, a, a licensing type approach better? I actually don't have the answer. But what I do know is that as we um, start to test and evaluate these type of systems, we will be holding it to a very, very high standard and going back to the norms of international humanitarian law. You know, Article 36 checks, which we do for weapons um, now, is the type of um, environment I fully expect us to employ with any kind of effect um, AI system with a, an effector in that way. It's really interesting because, as you said, humans aren't infallible. So isn't a mistake to assign sort of the same anthropomorphic values or standards to a machine? And in fact, I have heard the argument made from people current and serving and, and former serving members of the military um, against the campaign to end killer, uh, to ban killer robots, which is that AI could potentially make things a bit more humane, even if the AI itself doesn't have humanitarian values and we can't encode human, human values into a machine. If the net effect is more humane war, and even if we can't open up the black box AI and understand exactly how it works, if it's very effective, then is that still justified and permissible to use? It's certainly a huge conversation is. that is happening with a lot of very valid perspectives and voices. Um, but I certainly think it's one we're going to have to continue to have if we're going to use AI in the appropriate settings. Um, and to, to the level of comfort that we feel as a society that we're, we're okay with. But I guess that also does lead to a next question, which is, you know, on those broader legal and ethical issues, what happens if our adversaries don't uphold the same kind of standards? Do we cede asymmetric advantage to those adversaries? Another great question. Um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess uh, without answering that directly, at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to avoid the question, which I'm not, um, I, I think you know we could look at an analogy. So there are many, many times where um, the, you know, the ADF and, and other militaries have faced um, uh, those who would uh, do things in a different way and have a difficult, a different uh, moral and ethical viewpoint to our own. Um, and indeed, you know, potentially use weapons that are either outlawed or potentially outlawed or banned, um, such as cluster munitions or, or chemical weapons, for example. So, you know, we 
we train to respond to you know fighting in a chemical environment so that we can survive but you know as a signatory to um um a treaty that would prevent the use of that we we live with that kind of asymmetry in that uh, a potential foe may use that type of system but we uphold the you know our own moral standing in the sense that we're not prepared to uh, to go to that uh, level and i think you know we can um, overemphasize just how impactful artificial intelligence could be. We shouldn't really That's lose true. sight of the fact that, you know, it still remains quite brittle um, and quite focused on the task that it's given. Now, we can see, you know, an ever-growing body of ability to use artificial intelligence tools uh, to provide an advantage. Um, I guess I, I I think we are sort of used to not necessarily fighting um, evenly, and there will be an opportunity to exploit weaknesses if even if somebody doesn't choose to abide by in, in international uh, norms um and that's where you know we apply our strength against somebody else's weakness and part of the you know the whole discussion around asymmetry is you know what is that weakness and how do we apply our strength against it it doesn't necessarily mean you have to you know race to the bottom and just mm-hmm. ignore all the previously um uh, laid out rules and treaties that we we would wish to uphold and perhaps actually one of the strengths that we need to draw on and we have a history of is fighting in an uneven ethical landscape and still winning. Absolutely. And still protecting our soldiers and protecting the mission. Yeah, absolutely. Because eventually war ends. Mm. And then there's consequence and there's a recovery from that as a societal level as well. Yeah. That's a really good perspective on that. Um, the analogy with uh, nuclear is quite interesting as well because I understand the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has been open to establishing potentially some sort of UN mandated body like the International um, Atomic Agency uh, to sort of investigate or to be able to at least uh, monitor what different countries are doing with AI when it comes to military applications. So watch this space. I think there's a lot of that ethical uh, frameworks and and how they apply in real contexts is starting to emerge quite rapidly. So what's the next step for translating some of Rico's projects into deployable capability? Um so it's a lighter topic. Um, yes. So, um, I mean, Rico has a, a, a reasonable portfolio um, now, um, you know, several tens of, of different projects. Um, the leader follower one is a great example. You know, we've sort of proven the concept now. We've proven the feasibility now. We've sort of shown there may be value in this uh, now. So the conceptual discovery phase is sort of uh, coming to a close. And what we're seeking to do now is move that into a capability acquisition and capability development kind of pathway. Um, and so uh, we are making the recommendation that that will transition into one of the land capability programs. Um, and then they can take the next step, which is much more of an integrated approach to using that technology in the platform um, and in the sort of deployed sense uh, for the soldiers on the battlefield. So um, some of our some of our projects might not go anywhere and that's Mm -hmm. the point of the sort of discovery learning which is you know what we think that we thought there was something in it we tested our hypothesis actually it turns out that that's not the Mm -hmm. case but what have we learned along the way and the body of knowledge that the rico is building up um across its the team i've got three phds in the team so you know we've got a both a technical body of knowledge but also an experiential mm-hmm. body of knowledge will help to inform all of the capability programs when it comes to you know some of the AI applications where autonomy may or may not be useful and of course 
the land capability uh, development teams come to us and ask us questions as subject matter experts on on robotic and autonomous systems. So we're kind of a common good organization mm. across the land capability. And of course, we collaborate with with our equivalents in Navy and Air Force uh, very regularly. And indeed, my, uh, my boss is the joint force integrator for autonomous systems and teaming. And so, you know, we, we're all feeding into that kind of uh, ADF level uh, body of knowledge. So we uh, both collaborate together and share data together. So there are a number of potential strings for uh, our projects. The Boeing one I talked about, you know, the, we can see an offset uh, into um, one of the capability programs there. And so that's we will we will try where we can to, to do that, but of course, you know, successfully failing mm-hmm. is also part of the Rico remit. So, how do, you know, if it doesn't work, that's okay, as long as it doesn't work because we didn't mess it up. But it just doesn't work because the technology is not ready. Well, we've learned something from that, or it's too unsafe, or we can't make the safety case work. Mm-hmm. That's okay too, because now we understand some of the boundaries and barriers that that yeah. are getting in the way of the adoption of this sort of range of technology. And what you've described actually reminds me of the model or the approach that big tech firms use, right? This idea of not not move fast and break things, but more fail fast and fail hard, but then learn from it. Like that is actually the point of prototyping. And if you build a product, get a red team in there to try to break the product, um, you know, or create a minimum viable product for the outcome that you want, but then test it with edge cases, test how brittle it is, test how resilient it is in different contexts and so forth and so forth. It's a long journey, Mm. um, but it's quite an impactful one as long as you don't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And as long as you have an organization that is willing to tolerate some level of failure, but the learnings that come from that failure are so important to incorporate back into the organization. That's so true. Um, having failed spectacularly in front of my two-up boss uh, less than a week ago where we <laughs> aimed to demonstrate something to him and uh, because of a number of factors, not least of which the weather, um, we, we weren't able to show that. And <laughs> so, um, But we've learned quite a bit from, from that. And, you know, he, he understands what we were trying to achieve and he's, you know, tolerant of the fact that it didn't work, um, which is sort of, uh, I guess, contrary to many people's view of, you know, senior leadership within defense, mm. um, certainly, uh, from, you know, headland capability in that case, the chief of army, you know, they're interested in, you know, uh, learn through doing. And some of the learnings might not be positive in that, in the sense that it's naturally a, a progression. It's, you know, we understand where, where things don't work and that's as important as where things do work. That risk appetite for learn by doing is so critical if we're really going to come to grips with that technology and how they can actually add value to our organisations, I think. So if you can cast your mind forward, let's say if you can imagine war fighting in 10 years' time, where do you see robotics and automation having the biggest impact or the widest adoption? And, and what does human-machine teaming look like then? Gosh, I'll get my crystal ball out. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, potentially, as I sort of mentioned before about the sort of the transformation that could be undertaken. So what we might see is a less densely populated battlefield. Mm. So humans are still very present because I think the nature of war um, is is still a very human undertaking, particularly for the land domain. And I mm. think sometimes people sort of 
uh, view things through a kind of semi Hollywood view, which is, you know, it's everything's done at distance. Um, you know, the, the land fight is very close up and very personal. Uh, and anyone who's watching the sort of conflict in Europe at the moment will be seeing that in their social media feeds pretty regularly. And so the, the, the place of the human, of the soldier, close up, personal, and, you know, very dangerous environments. I don't foresee that will go away. But what we might be able to do is uh, make first contact with the enemy, but not necessarily with the crude system. Um, we might be able to shape and hold and steer the enemy on the ground, again, not necessarily with a human system. And then at the point of absolute need, that's where we apply the human element where, you know, creativity um, and, you know, innovation, Discussion. lateral thought um, really, really plays a part. Yeah. Um, that's where, you know, we will use our human workforce. But it means we can hold them back from some of the, perhaps from some of the more dangerous elements of the battlefield. Um, and that's the kind of close up and very visceral element of land warfare. Um, and I think as you move uh, into a more safe space, let's say, even though none of it's really safe these days with a range of weapons, but into the logistic chain, you know, how can we um, really accelerate the evac evacuation of casualties, for example, you know, uh, casualty evacuation is all about time. How do you get the, how do you get that injured soldier into the hands of um, a qualified uh, medical person or s stabilize them long enough to get them proper medical care? We might be able to do that differently. And certainly, last year's Army Innovation Day challenge, for example, was was looking at automated casualty evacuation. So, I think there'll be a number of functions that that we will um, start to see that that autonomy come into play. Um, and as I say, trying to um, maximize the, uh, the the reduce the amount of time that soldiers are exposed to risk by making first contact through uh, autonomy. Um, and you asked a, a question about teaming. And I think it's really interesting. So this sort of human machine teaming has got something of a mythology associated with it. Humans, soldiers in particular, but, you know, same in Air Force and Navy, we've been teaming with machines forever. Mm. Um, a pilot is teamed with his aircraft. His aircraft has yeah. some functionality that the pilot can't have um it you know it can see beyond the horizon he can't yep. see beyond the horizon or she so the human machine teaming element is interesting i suppose where we get to is where um the machine starts to become more of a teammate as opposed to a team member and therefore you can give it a task go and search here mm. um fulfill this role for me and then you don't have to supervise in the way that you currently do so yeah. it's a subtle change in the way that teaming works yeah um as opposed to you know take it's it's not glib to say human machine teaming but people sort of have this view in their mind but i think it will be you know i think what we'll see is a, a move away from intimate control of robotic platforms more to a a kind of sentiment control so go and do this for me and we're starting to see some early stages of that now. Go and search this box for me. Um, that that's that sort of higher level of control, uh, mm -hmm. I think, is where we'll go. So human-machine teaming is not really new in any sense. It has a long historical record. But what we're seeing now is the evolution of that relationship as the technology changes and advances. Yeah, I guess the, the capacity and the capability of the machine is growing. Yep. And therefore, our kind of relationship might change a little bit. Mm. Um, so if you have a relationship, yeah, a relationship with the machine. With the machine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that sort of, you know, I, I think that will change. But as I say, it'd be more of a task-orientated kind of, yeah. uh, rather than uh, I will now fly, let's say in the example of a UAS, I'm not going to fly a UAS to this to to look at a certain area. You'll just task the UAS. Yep. 
um, and it will go and look and you'll either get a photo or, or, you know, live video feed or whatever it is that the system is able to offer you. Um, And ultimately it is still about bringing together the best capabilities and natural abilities of the human and then the technical capabilities of the machine. Yeah, the, the the sort of analogy of the centaur chess, where you know you play chess and you, a computer helps you. Uh, you're using the best of of both skills to get the best outcome for yourself. So, uh, according to your crystal ball, uh, soldiers will not become obsolete, and we will not be dominated by a world where wars are fought using killer killer robots alone. Um, I I don't see that in the foreseeable future. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Don't quote me. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) Is that another one of your KPIs from your (laughs) higher-ups right now? (laughs) Well, I think that is a fantastic foray into the work of Rico and the kind of projects that you're prototyping, conceptualizing, and getting closer and closer to genuine, real, live capability. And it's been fantastic to converse with you, Robin. Fantastic to get your insights about both not just the projects and what you're doing, but the way that you're doing it, because even that in itself is a real step change for our organizations. So not just what what capabilities we're realizing or putting into the pipeline, but the way in which we work. Um, I think AI is fundamentally changing that and challenging some of our preconceptions on that front as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks very much for having me.